Yeah, so after singing a lot of really great songs, I get the privilege of talking about judgment. So I think Tim got the better end of the deal, didn't he? So we live in times, uh, cultural times, where it's all about let's, let's just come together, right? Let's embrace diversity. Let's just get along. Let's don't worry about too much about that stuff that makes us different or separates us. And why are you narrow-minded Christians? Why don't y'all just go with the flow? Why don't you just get on board with the rest of us? And I would say that's about 90% true, right? I mean, we're not trying to be ugly. We're not wanting to um, attack people, harm people. We want to be winsome because our gospel is winsome. But when it comes to this one thing called the gospel, there is no room for diversity. We don't get to come together. We get to invite them to bow to a king who graciously invites them to himself. And so when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to that core identity of Christianity... We don't get to compromise. We don't get to make it acceptable to everybody. We get to invite other people to accept him. That's what we get to do. And so as we go to Jude, um, and we're going to take that big middle section of like roughly 5 through 16. As we get into this middle section of Jude, we're dealing with um, false teachers who wanted to do just that. They want to twist the gospel. They want to make it okay to live the way they want to live. And so, as we kind of shared last week, we've got this counterbalance. So we had Colossians uh, as our last series, and we just looked at how, how beautiful and supreme and glorious and powerful and wonderful Jesus is. And then counterbalance, and against that, the false teachers wanted to say, why don't you come follow these rigorous self-discipline, this ascetic, these ascetic practices? Why don't you just totally restrain yourself into legalism Because then you'll get this fuller experience. And he said, no, Jesus is so amazing and so wonderful. There is nothing fuller and better than having him. Well, the false teachers in Jude are the very opposite end of the spectrum. Why don't we take this thing called grace and put it over the top of our greed and then invite people to give to us? Why don't we take this grace and wrap it over the top of our sensuality and our desire for self-satisfaction and give it to people? Why don't we wrap the gospel over our robes of fame and power and status and, and give it to people? And so on one end, it's this rigid legalism because you'll get more of Jesus that way or more of fullness that way. And on the other end is this grace lets you do anything you want. Isn't that great? You can see that playing out in our culture, right? And so we kind of tweak and tamper a little bit and then all of a sudden it's okay. However you want to define marriage, it's fine. As if God hadn't spoken on it. And there's churches that do that. Wrapped in grace, don't you want to get along? Wrapped in grace, don't you want to accept everything? Wrapped in grace, if they love each other, it's okay. You don't get that right. I don't get that right. And I don't say that to be ugly. I just say it because I don't get that right. If God speaks, I don't get the right to change what he says. But that's what false teachers do is they just wrap it in grace you know, by the way, a little more money wouldn't hurt, grace, you know. By the way, making me more famous wouldn't hurt, grace. And that's what Jude is combating here 
in the book of Jude. It's a really short book. He said last week, oh, I wanted so much to write you about salvation. It's amazing. But instead, I had to write to you about these false teachers. And so Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote so that believers would fight for the purity of the faith. Contend is the word. Strive for the purity of the faith. But not just contend and fight for it. Persevere in it. I hate to take a time out. Would you turn the monitors just a hair down? I can kind of hear myself echo. Sorry, these guys only get pointed out when, they, when something's not right. They do a great job. So I hate to do that. There you go. Um, and so they want to, the false teachers, contend for the faith and then persevere in the faith. And I want you to think about their situation. It might be similar to like a church split. If you've ever been through one, you know what kind of feelings attack you? Well, in, the, in Jude, what happened is you've got people that have been elevated into leadership over the church. I don't know if it's the main leader or some of the group of leaders, but they've been elevated over the church, and now they're pulling the church towards their false teaching. Think about how unsettling that would be for you as a, as a member of a church. Because your temptation is, well, that's our leader, that's our pastor, that's my Sunday school teacher. I kind of want to believe them and go with them. And it sounds good and it makes me feel good. Maybe I should just go that way, right? Or it might be that it just unsettles you a little bit. Or it might be, well, if I just compromise a little, I can kind of keep believing the right stuff, but, but I won't have to deal with it. Think how unsettling it would be to be sitting in a church where possibly the majority has gone the way of the false teachers. That's who Jude is writing to. He's not writing to try to get the false teachers back. They're gone. He's writing to that little band of faithful people sitting in a church that has been taken over by false teaching. And he's saying, if you'll just press on, the power of a sovereign God is going to judge these people. Now you start to see how this could be a comfort. The power of a sovereign God wins in the end. Don't let them take you over. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't fear. Don't turn back. The power of a sovereign God is going to guarantee his victory and he's going to guarantee to keep you until the end and he's going to guarantee to preserve you spiritually for eternity. And so that's who he's speaking to. That's who Jude's speaking to. Fight for the purity of the faith. You must go to war for it. Persevere in the faith. Don't turn back. Don't believe what they're saying. Don't be drawn away. By the way, in God's mind, the majority has never been that important to him. Like ever. So if you had all 7 billion people in humanity say, with one voice, we absolutely agree, God, you're wrong, you know what God would say? No, I'm not. Like, let every man be a liar and let God be true. That's what he says in his word. And so the majority is not his concern. His concern is for those who are faithful to guard them. For those who are faithful, I'll keep you to eternity. For those that are faithful, I'll war for you. For those that are faithful... And that's who he's writing to. And so no one likes to talk about this judgment stuff. I don't. And like it's not some twisted pleasure of mine. Let me talk about hell today. But it's in the Bible. And we're faithful to that. And Jesus talked an awful lot about it. And so even if it doesn't feel good and it kind of hurts our feelings, it's here. It's the reality. It is the eternal reality. And if you notice in your title, don't fear, judgment's coming. Because that's his point, Right? Instead of being afraid of these false teachers and being afraid of where they're taking your church and whether they're, where they're taking the church at large, don't be afraid because judgment's real. You see how judgment's kind of a two-edged sword? It's both a comfort and a terror. For those who follow Jesus, it's a comfort. The world will get set right one day. 
For those who don't, it's a terror because they will have to face it. All right, so let's look at it. We're going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump in. So starting off in verse, um, let's go ahead and skip to verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme what they do not understand. They are destroyed like unreasoning animals, all that they understand instinctively, naturally, their natural lusts. They understand that. They don't understand the angelic world. Woe to them. Woe to them, exclamation point. For they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden wreaths at your love feasts. As they feast with you without any fear, shepherds who feed themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam, of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against God, against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own selfish desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Did you get a little sense of the Holy Spirit's view of these people? Like you kind of picked up the negative tone, right? You should have. So the Holy Spirit is basically going on a rant against false teachers to show us how serious it is, that it's not something to play with, it's not something to kind of accommodate. It's something to go to war with because eternity is at stake. There's an eternal direction they drive people in, and it's destruction. And there's an eternal direction Jesus desires for them that's in the church. It's life. Let's pray. So, Father, it is our prayer that you would help us to stay faithful in the face of people who disagree with us, to believe in the face of unbelief, to stay true when those who are pastors and those who are leaders and those who are teachers and those who are on TV and those who are famous and those who everybody follow, they're faithless, they're false. In the face of that, grant us to stay true. Grant us to not give in, to not taint the beauty and the purity of your gospel, to not give an inch on your gospel and what it means for our lives. God, it's the only hope of an unbelieving world. It's the only hope of a hostile, hateful world. Is that somebody contends for the beauty and the purity of the gospel. Grant that to be us, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So stay faithful. False the false teacher's judgment is certain. Stay faithful. That's the message to the faithful church. Stay faithful. The false teacher's judgment is certain. And so this is 
going into the power of God and the, and the promise of God that he will judge and make things right and using that as the foundation to build their commitment and their faithfulness to. And so the first thing we see about judgment being certain because they distort the truth to pursue immorality and throw off authority. They, they distort the truth in order to pursue immorality and throw off authority. So I get two great words in one text that people love to talk about. They love to talk about judgment, and they also really love to talk about authority, right? I mean, if you were to rank biblical words, those would be the top two, right? That's what's here. And so authority is one of those things that we kind of just naturally bristle about. Like when somebody says, there's an authority structure in the home, ooh, oh, okay. Or, you know what, there's an authority structure in the church, ooh, uh, or there's an authority structure in society through teachers and police officers and government and layers of government. There's authority structures that God set up in, in civil society. Ooh, wait, ooh. And it kind of cuts both ways, right? Because there is a sense in which people abuse authority or they're just really unwise with their authority and power and it hurts the people under them. And so you can see like, why some of that is, we've got enough bad examples, I don't like it. But it, it goes the other way too. We don't like authority in the first place. We don't want anybody to be over us. We are self-made people. We are the determiners of our own destiny. We are the pilots of our ship. Here's the problem though. When we kind of step out of the micro bit of you know, people mess up authority and people don't like authority, when you go globally or culturally, Every institution and authority structure and power structure that's set up in our culture, is there is a war to tear it down. Like there is a cultural war to throw out tradition. There's a cultural war to throw out institutions. There's a cultural war to throw out authority structures. And when that's the case, it's the symptom of something very different. It's a symptom of people who have thrown off the authority of God. And now they will throw off everything that looks like authority from him. Does that make sense? That's what has to happen here. In the false teachers, you have to erode the foundation of lordship. You have to erode the foundation of authority in the church before you can ever come in and make the changes these false teachers wanted to make. And that's what we see them doing. But it's not just them, is it? We erode the foundation of authority and we erode the foundation of lordship today like crazy. Ooh, that just feels harsh. But it's what Jesus said. No, that's so harsh. Why are you so narrow-minded? That's church people that are going to say that to you. Erode the foundation of lordship. Erode the foundation of authority. You know, I know this couple who's like this and they really love each other. Erode the foundation. And if I can erode the foundation of lordship and I can erode the foundation of authority and I can erode the foundation of a solid revealed word that doesn't change then I can start bringing anything I want, right? Anything that feels good, I can do it. Anything that is sensational, because we like sensational more than black and white words on a page. We like dreams, we like visions, we like miracles, we like gold dust falling out of the ducts of the AC system. That's exciting! Words on a page and this guy talking about them? That's not as exciting, is it? Doesn't have as much pizzazz to it. Well, that's what we do. That's what they did. Let's look at it in the text. So he says, Yet in like manner, 
these people also. And so when he's saying like manner, he's pointing us back to the examples that we didn't really get to last week. That's okay. So... need to talk about or y'all are looking funny okay and so jesus delivered his people and then he destroyed them in their unbelief so if he would do that these people are just like Find there and good there and joyful there. Is my microphone messed up? Okay. How about we get rid of this? It's gone. One of these work. Is that better? Okay. I keep seeing all these puzzled faces. All right. So they, he goes to the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. They abandoned the relations that are confined to marriage and they abandoned them. And then they abandoned the natural use of man and woman for the unnatural use of man and man, right? And so they were judged for it. In like manner, he says, not the exact same sins, but similar sins, sins of rejecting authority, sins of sensuality. They're doing that. And it says in the text, relying on dreams, they defile the flesh. That's the key phrase that I want you to pick up on, relying on dreams. So if we are going to get rid of this book... We've got to find something else, right? And so what they did is, we have had a dream. Wow, they had dreams? If they had a dream, it must be right. If you have a dream, it must be true. Let's listen to them. How exciting a dream. Relying on dreams, they use their dreams to justify twisting the gospel. They use their dreams to justify the behaviors that are about to be listed. But, hey, I had a dream. Who are you to argue with a dream? It was from God, right? Oh, he had a dream. How exciting. It must be okay that he does this stuff, right? And so that's what he says. Relying on dreams, they defile the flesh. Using their dreams instead of God's word, they say... Defiling the flesh means sexual sin. And so they say it's okay. Because of grace, because of some twisted form of doctrine, it's okay if we, you know, kind of have... Relations with multiple people. And again, it's just like today. Things don't change that much. Oh, because of this thing called grace, it's okay if we marry people in love. Because of grace, it's okay if they're pastors and members and they don't have to be confronted with that. They're in love. Relying on dreams, relying on experience, relying on emotions, relying on something besides revelation, we can twist anything to make it sound okay, can't we? Y'all been reading 1 Corinthians, right? Somehow the church in chapter 5 was okay with a guy and his stepmother being too close. And it says they were puffed up about it, right? 
Where do you have to go as a Christian to think, as a church, to think, I mean, that's okay. How great is it? We've got all this liberty in our church. That's what they did. Because of their dreams, because of their experience, because of their emotions, because of their rational thought, whatever the thing is, they have justified behavior that God says is wrong, sinful, ungodly. They justify their their defiling of the flesh, their immorality. It's fine. It's grace. God forgives it. It's all good. No, it's not. Relying on their dreams, they reject authority. The word for rejecting authority is, could literally be translated, they reject lordship. They reject someone from being sovereign over them. And when that word is in the singular, like this text, it almost always refers to God. So they have rejected Jesus' lordship over their life. They have eroded the foundation of there is a God who rules me. They have eroded the foundation of there is a Jesus who commands me. Does that sound familiar? Jesus actually speaks commands to his people. Oh, but that's, that's legalism. No. Go read the words of Jesus and see if you don't find some things that he tells you you must do after you believe in him, after you follow him. Because grace changes you, he asks you to live a different way. They reject that lordship. They reject that authority from over them. And as long as you can erode authority in the life of a church, you can eventually get to where anything is okay. Based on their dreams, based on their feelings, based on their experience, based on their logical reasoning, they reject lordship. They reject authority. And then this next one's kind of interesting. They blaspheme. And that word's used in each of the next two verses. They slander. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And you're like, okay, what's that? So glorious ones generally is a reference to angels. And so the question becomes, are these good angels or are these bad angels that we call demons and Satan? Well, based on the context, it's Satan. It's demons. They blaspheme. They slander the demonic realm. And you're probably thinking along with me. Good for them. I mean, we're not supposed to speak real highly of demons. They're kind of evil and bad and do horrible things. Not so fast. They are judged because based on their dreams, they are blaspheming the demonic realm. And so what does that mean? They're slandering, they're rebuking. Somehow they're interacting with the demonic realm in order to belittle Satan. In order to make it seem like he has no power. To make it seem like they have power over him. And the Bible says that's a problem. And so if you see a preacher up on the stage and he's worked up and he's sweating and he's spitting, stomping on the devil, watch out. Watch out. I don't sing the song where he sits on attack, you know, the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. I don't sing that verse. Devil is not something to play with. In medieval times, do you know why we have a little red man and a pitchfork? It's because they wanted to mock Satan in order to take the fear of him away. They blasphemed, they slandered Satan, and that was a problem. And so when you have ministers who have zero clue about the spiritual world and have zero clue about the power of Satan, mocking him, belittling him, claiming a power over him, claiming to stomp on him, claiming to rebuke him, the Bible says they have no clue what they're doing. And look at the contrast. 
Michael, who is an archangel, one of the two named angels in the Bible, the prince of the angels, when he goes to war with Satan over the body of Moses, does he stomp on the devil? No. He will not sling a slanderous, blasphemous judgment against the devil. Instead, he will say, the Lord rebuke you. I have a thought that you're not quite as powerful as Michael the archangel. You might want to be careful about talking to Satan. I make it a personal practice. I never talk to the devil. I don't rebuke him. I don't talk to him. I don't talk. I'll talk about him because he's in the Bible. I don't tell him what to do. I do what James says. Draw near to the Lord, and he will flee from you. I run to Dad, who is sovereign over the spiritual world and sovereign over Satan, and I get up under him, and I let him rebuke Satan, run Satan off, do whatever else he needs to do with Satan. They dared to slander the demonic realm, and verse 10 says they have no clue what they're messing with. I don't want us to think because Satan is defeated that Satan is powerless. I don't want us to think because Satan is defeated, somehow he has no ability to harm the world and to harm me and to work. I don't want us to think that just because he's defeated, he is powerless among us and we get some authority over him. God has authority over him. He is defeated. He is under God. But he's not somebody we need to be playing with. He is bigger and badder than we are. Make sense? So based on their dreams, they twist in order to justify blaspheming Satan, rejecting the lordship of God, walking into sensuality, where Michael himself, the archangel, says, well, the Lord rebuke you. Now this is an interesting thing, I won't go into it too much, but this is from a book that was written, a lot of just kind of apocalyptic books were written, they do, they're not in the Bible, they shouldn't be in the Bible. This book is called The Assumption of Moses, and it, it recalls the account where Satan comes for Moses' body at his death. And, he, and, and Satan lays a rightful claim on Moses. He killed an Egyptian. He's mine. I get him. And so God sends Michael, and Michael goes to war with him. And they dispute about the body of Moses. They dispute about who has a rightful claim, God or Satan. And then how does he settle the charge in the assumption of Moses? The Lord rebuke you. That is, the Lord vindicates his servant, forgiven, and the Lord pronounces a judgment on Satan that is final and it will stand forever. So anyhow, that's just a weird little thing. Jude does that at least twice. He quotes these books that aren't part of the Bible. He'll do it later in Enoch. But he quotes them and he tells these stories and brings them in for us to look at. So we'll talk about that in a second. They blaspheme the glorious, the, the glorious ones. And so as you look at people you're learning from, think about it this way. Do they water down the Bible and the gospel in order to, to get something else in its place? If so, watch out. Do they use the gospel as a means for gain versus generosity? Watch out. Do they play around with the demonic realm as if they are something special and powerful and the demonic realm is powerless? Watch out. Do they erode the foundations of authority that God has given us? Watch out. The second thing we see, because they are greedy and deceptive in their practices. They are greedy and deceptive in their practices. All right, so no joke. Y'all probably remember this. Within the last year, there is a very wealthy pastor in Atlanta who sent out a support letter. You know what it said? I need a new $20 million jet. And 
I don't mean to get on you guys that work at Gulfstream. I think it's great what you do, but pastors probably don't need brand new products, right? I need a $20 million jet. We need you to send in your money. You're going to go to a widow who has nothing and say, it would be a valuable thing for you to give me money for a jet when you can't pay your rent. He did it. There's another guy that I looked up, and his net worth was under what I thought it was. $55 million is his net worth. Has a 17,000-square-foot house with three elevators in it. Tell me how you need that for ministry again. Tell me, tell me why it's okay to have that much money sitting in the bank as a pastor. And then I was looking at the list of the, top, of the richest pastors in America. There is a guy who is worth $760 million. And he's totally okay with it. And he's totally okay through the TV screen talking to you and asking you to give him more. The gospel has become a means to get rich. And it's great, it's great days for false teachers. It is a great day if you've got a charismatic message that will twist people and prey on their insecurities and prey on their fears and prey on their desires for more. It is great days for people like that. They're getting really rich doing it. But they're not the only people out there. There's a pastor with the initials of JP that I like a lot. So I went and looked and said, I just wanted to see. He's written a bunch of books, millions of dollars in revenue. Like, okay, what, how does he handle it? He's never taken a penny from one book sale he's ever had. Never taken a penny from one speaking engagement or conference he's ever put on. It all is funneled into a, a ministry foundation that he has set up that gives money back to his church, that gives money to international missions projects and things throughout the world. Never taken a penny. Does he have a right to? Sure. Does he have a right to make money off of what he produces? Yeah. But the gospel doesn't produce a right to get rich. It produces a desire to be generous. Not because somebody compelled you to, but because you desire to. Rick Warren gave back 25 years worth of salaries once his book went big. Like him or not, he gave back every penny that his church has ever paid him. And now he reversed tithes on agreement with his wife. He tithes 90% and keeps 10%. These are just different ways the gospel takes people. False teachers do it to get rich and are greedy. But when the gospel gets a hold of people, they get generous. And they get generous, and they may accumulate some money in the process. That's fine. But generosity is the posture of their life, not consumption off of people's backs. So that's what we see. Let's go through the text real quick. Woe to them. That's an Old Testament word of judgment, right? Woe to them, it says. And it says, they walked in the way of Cain. Cain, in the face of God's correction, instead of repenting, doubled down and went into sin. Woe to them, because in the face of correction, they continue in their rebellion, and they don't turn back to the Father. And then it says they abandon themselves. I want you to see this for the sake of, of they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. What was Balaam's error? If you read through Numbers, Balaam is a guy that was paid money to prophesy against God's people, Israel. And so somebody said, here's, here's a bunch of money. A king sent him. Here's a bunch of money. Will you come curse the Israelites so we can beat them? And if you remember him, his donkey rebuked him. That's where you might have heard his name before. And so he goes, and he's about to curse Israel. And you know what God does? Captures his mouth by his spirit and pronounces blessing instead of cursing on his people. But then later in Numbers 31, he gives the advice to the Midianites, and he says, if you will put your women out in front of you, 
and make them really attractive, the Israelites might be tempted, and if they're tempted, they will lose the favor of God and you'll beat them. This is Balaam. He's not a good guy just because God used him to pronounce a word of blessing. He's not a good guy. He's a greedy guy. He's the kind of guy that sends out a letter and wants a new jet. He's the kind of guy that because he has a, a, a reputation in the prophecy world, will put himself out for hire to get rich. And did you see the word? They abandoned themselves to this greed. They abandoned themselves for this error. And that's what false... There is almost always circling around false teachers. Greed. There's almost always a component that wants to get rich off of what they're doing. Or wants to get famous off of what they're doing. Or wants to get as in these false teachers' case, some personal satisfaction off of what they're doing. And they're also like Korah's rebellion. They went against the authority of Moses, and God just opened up the ground and swallowed them, their families, and everybody that was against Moses. Swallowed them, gone. They perished in Korah's rebellion. So look at what it's saying. It intensifies. They walked in the way of Cain. They gave themselves over to greed, and it destroyed them. God swallowed them up. They were judged for it. And then, then Jude goes into all these different word pictures just to show how deceptive these people are. And it talks about their hidden reefs. Reefs. Okay, so I've got a boat. I see a harbor over there, and it looks safe. There's a storm coming, and I'm headed for it. But what I don't see is beneath the surface hidden is this reef that is going to tear my ship apart. So what looks like safety is really destruction. That's what false teachers are. They come into your sharing of the Lord's Supper and they have zero shame about their intentions and zero shame to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ into themselves. And they look safe, but they're going to destroy you. That's a false teacher. They are shepherds who feed themselves. What's the job of a shepherd? It's to take the sheep and feed them and get them water and protect them. That's all they're supposed to do. But instead of enriching the sheep, caring for them, making sure they have food and protection, what are they doing? They're eating. They're getting rich. They're feeding themselves off of the sheep. That's what they do. So false teachers care nothing for the care of the people. They care about the enrichment of themselves. Ezekiel 34, you can mark in your notes, is a whole chapter uh, going against false shepherds. And then God's saying, I'm going to be the good shepherd, and I'm going to bind up the broken, and I'm going to take care of them again, and I'm going to gather what has been scattered but he rebukes them in, in verse 2 of that. They feed themselves. Their job is to feed the sheep, but they instead feed themselves on the sheep. And then it talks about their fruitless trees and, or, I'm sorry, their waterless clouds. So you've got this agricultural economy. You've got a very dry, if you've ever seen pictures of Israel, it's dry. There's some places where they've got water in the heights, but it's pretty dry. And so if you're going to grow crops and live, Rain is your only hope. It's the same in Peru. They have a rainy season. If that rainy season doesn't come, you're destroyed. Your family's livelihood is gone. And so here it comes. It's, it's time. We need rain so bad. And you look out, kind of like in states where you look out and look at all those dark clouds forming over on the horizon. Wow, we're going to get gra- uh, rain and I'm not going to have to water my grass and pay for it. Here it comes. And then it passes right over with all its darkness. And they're at a drop of water in them. That's false teachers. Waterless clouds, clouds that look promising for life, but in the end bring destruction on the people that have followed them. 
And then the last one I'm going to point out is they are wandering stars. Stars are used for navigation. And so I can set my course based on the stars because they don't move. And so I can set my course by the star, and that's what teachers and leaders and pastors are supposed to be. I, I need to just, not perfectly, but I need to look and say, can I get my bearings off of this teacher and this leader? And so I look up, okay, if they're headed in this direction, I'm, I'm probably roughly safe to go in that direction too. I can just kind of check my bearings off of pastors and teachers, right? And that's what you're supposed to do. Not perfectly, definitely not perfectly, but at least the general direction. And so what are false teachers? You're headed off, and you want to just check, am I, am I in the right direction? Let me get my bearings. And you look to a false teacher, and it's like a star that has moved from its relocation. And all of a sudden, I follow them, and I think I'm headed in the right direction, and it ultimately ends me totally off course. So your teachers are meant to be stars, fixed points that you can kind of navigate and get your bearings by, but false teachers are those who wander, the wandering stars who totally take you off course, and you think you're doing fine. And these are the images that the Holy Spirit gives us about these people. And you can just visualize their deception. You can visualize this wreath underneath that's going to tear up a ship. You can just visualize the ship going there. You can visualize the cloud that's so desperately needed that passes over. And that's what I think Jude does so well, is he gives you these word pictures that just let you see how damaging false teachers are. And that it's not a deception that's, that, that's irrelevant. It's not a deception that doesn't matter. It's one that has eternal destruction and eternal life playing against each other. That's how big a deal false teachers are. And that's why God chooses to write a book showing their destruction is coming. Showing how terrible a thing it is to lead God's people away from God and truth and the gospel. Because it's life and death. It's heaven and hell. It's eternity. And then... Because they are greedy and deceptive in their practices. The last one, I'm not going to really hit it except for to share about the judgment. Because they are ungodly in their words and in their deeds. They are judged because they're ungodly in their words and ungodly in their deeds. If you listen to people long enough, you're going to know what they really are like and what they really value. Have you noticed that? Like if you'll stop and with discernment just kind of listen to what people say and ask a few questions, you're eventually going to see what matters to them. You're going to see what their values are. And the same is true with false teachers. Eventually their words are going to betray, betray them if you listen, if you ask questions. But then their lifestyle also does it. God will come, and he quotes the book of Enoch. We'll probably, I'll, I'll maybe try to hit that next week. He quotes the book of Enoch to say the Lord will come with 10,000 of his angels. The God of angel armies is coming to execute judgment on everybody on this earth. And the only ones that will stand in the day of judgment are those who stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't get any particular joy of telling you that. It's just the reality. If you walk out of this life and into the next life and Jesus Christ has not saved you, sealed you with his Holy Spirit, and converted you, you will walk out of this life into the next to eternal judgment. And you can play games with me. You can play games with each other. You can laugh it off, mock it off. But it will not change the final reality of the world. Every single man will be judged. Every single woman will be judged. And only those who stand in Jesus will stand in that day. He is coming to execute judgment on everyone. 
And he is coming to convict them of their ungodliness. The word convict has put them into public open shame. He is coming to shame publicly his adversaries who have shamed him in their words and shamed him with their life for all of their time. He's coming to get the final word of shame, and it will be theirs, not his. And so as simply and clearly as I can tell you to wind this up, judgment will come. And it will come even if all of America takes a vote and says it's not coming. It's still coming. And in that day, here's the good news. Well, here's the bad news first. Every single one of us deserves it. We have all sinned by our nature. We have all sinned by our choice. We are all separated from a holy God forever. Except for one thing. God sent his son named Jesus into the world. God in human flesh. He lived a sinless life in place of your sinful life. He died on a cross for every single sin in all the world for all time and all people. And he died on the cross. Infinite blood or eternal uh, infinite blood shed for all of the infinite sins that we have thrown out. And he died for them. And he was put in a grave and he rose from the dead. And now he has sent his Holy Spirit into the world to convict us of that sin and separation and to show us Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. To convict us and draw us to put our faith in him and only him for salvation. Unless you think that by faith it's like, yeah, I believe some facts about Jesus, that's really good. The word for faith is the word, I've probably used it before, it's like a chair. Do I believe that's a chair back there? Yeah. I believe the fact that it's a chair, it's got four legs and even some nice cushions. But do I really believe it's a chair if I don't put the weight of my life on it and sit down? Faith is when you don't just believe some facts about Jesus, it's when you put the weight of your life on top of Jesus to let him hold it. So everyone who puts their faith, their life's weight and eternity's weight on top of Jesus, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who do not, no matter how much church they got under their belt, no matter how many times they put a check in the offering plate, no matter how many times they tried to convince themselves they were pretty good, no matter how many times they rejected and lived however they want, anyone that walks into eternity without Jesus will face eternal judgment. And there's no more remedies at that point. So I want to invite you not to to church... Not to give, but to believe. To believe in this Jesus for life. To believe in this Jesus for eternal security. To believe in this Jesus to rescue from the wrath that is to come. There's a few practical applications that you can see there, and I won't go through them. But I encourage you to read them. And definitely you read our Sunday school application where we're trying to get ourselves into meals, intentional meals with people in the church and try to grow into discipling relationships. So make sure you read that and do that. But at this point, I just want to pray, and I want to pray for you, and then I want to close it out and give you a chance to respond. So, Father, in this moment, eternity hangs in the balance. And I don't say that, and we don't say that to try to scare somebody, but to help us all see the reality, the weight of where we stand as people. And so, Father, I pray, I pray that you would work by your Spirit on those who are hard and those who are tender, 
on those who are so close to taking the step of believing, to crossing the line of faith, God, that your spirit would draw them over it. And those who are so hard and so pushing against it that you would drag them to believe. Father, I pray that you would move among us, that you would save, that you would strengthen the faithful to press on no matter what anybody else does. Father, that you would make this a church that doesn't give in and so that there's always a lighthouse, there's always a pure gospel hope that this world can have because we're here to tell them and we're here to show them. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.